Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we're joined, we have the very great honor of being joined by Dr. Joe Lang. And Dr. Lang, I should start out by saying that he's not a horse person, doesn't have horses. You have a dog, but but no horses. And and yet it's still really important for us to have Joe join us today. I'm going to read his bio. Uh, I have to read it because that's going to take half an hour. It's going to take at least half an hour. But I but I I went I I did sort of edited versions. No good. <laughs> and your bio at Joe is so interesting because depending upon the audience that we are uh, trying to reach, you know, some of the bios that I saw online, it would be, okay, I read that. Now, Joe, tell me what it, what it all means because some of the things that you've been exploring over the last 40 plus years are just fascinating. But the language set that's often used to describe them is not necessarily a language that we're all familiar with. But anyway, let me jump in with this. So I can interrupt for a second. Yes. My uh, uh, my wife and looking over my uh, Joanne, who you know, yes. uh, uh, looking over my CV one time, she said, you know, uh, uh, this could be treated as though you've had many varied experiences or you simply can't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is so- it? It may be the latter here before we get too carried away about the, the range of experience. Well, I've, I've, I've picked, I've, I've cherry picked, let me put it that way. I've cherry picked. So we'll, we'll say that you've had over 40 years of, of experience in the experimental and applied analysis uh, of behavior. And you have a particular focus on the design of teaching and learning environments. And that's an area that I find really interesting, and I hope we do a little exploration of that. And in 1999, you co-founded Headsprout. And do you want to just say really quickly uh, what Headsprout is? Because that's another area that I think people need to be more familiar with. Well, when I when I joined the company, I was I was misled. I thought it was a hair restoration firm, and. Uh, <laughs> It turned out to be it turned out to be a, a company we founded to create educational software and primarily in the area of reading for children. And Headsprout was uh, uh, a, a group of people, venture capital funded uh, company. Um, we started with a, with a, a, a team of five or six, grew to 23, 24, maybe a, a larger over time. And grew from there uh, to uh, having over uh, uh, seventy employees, and we uh, developed a, a user-tested, verified programs, uh, reading programs for children. And I like this uh, to say that we've helped over four million children learn to read. So with the program, so it was a, uh, you know, it was an extraordinarily fun undertaking that we did. That, uh, you know, the challenge was. How do you teach a child to read who may not know their letters or whatever? We can't know what they're coming in with uh, over the Internet without being able to hear or see them. <laughs> and and by a application of the, of the science of behavior, we were able to do that. This is a topic that I would very much like to return to. And I'm tempted to just say, oh, let's jump in here. But I'm going to hold off. But I think there there is a lot. I have a lot of questions around Headsprout. So I'll, I'll continue on, and then hopefully we'll have time to return to some of the questions. So you earned your PhD at the University of Chicago, where you collaborated with Paul Adronis and Israel Gold Diamond on research that uh, was investigating the adduction of untrained complex symbolic behavior from simpler behavioral components, which definitely will need some translating. And then there, you know, what that also... That was with pigeons. Yes. That was with pigeons, by the way. Pigeons, yes. (laughs) Yes. And as you, in this uh, one uh, bio, part of the bio that I found online, it said that that led to some of the 
key elements upon which the head sprout learning technology was based. So there are a lot of questions in there. And there's also the, the rabbit hole of what was Dr. Gold Diamond like? So we'll just <laughs> tie a string around the finger for saying that that would be fun to hear a little bit about Dr. Gold Diamond. And also working with pigeons, you investigated animal models of psychopathology, specifically the recurrence of pathological patterns, which is headbanging as a function of normal behavioral processes. And this, I think, for those of us who work with horses that present behavior that just makes our head scratch in terms of why, why, why. This is an interesting area to go down. You have more than 35 years of experience in the experimental and applied learning sciences with particular focus on the design of instruction. And that is an area that I very much find interesting. And I would say that I met you first at the Art and Science of Animal Training conferences. And your presentations were always one of the highlights for me of the conferences because you brought a lot of concepts and principles to our understanding of training that we had not really thought about in any great depth. And, and there's some really, in particular, the presentations that you did on emotions, really, really clarifying and important. And that may be one of the areas that we also, another rabbit hole we go down, who knows, a lot of rabbit holes. And one of the presentations that you did at one point at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference was on degrees of freedom. And I've heard you talk about that at other times as well. And this was a, one of those concepts that when you've talked about it, has always made my ears go forward, where I have said, not only does this resonate with me and this seems important, but it's also one of those things that I wish more people could, could hear. But it always reminds me of the first time I read Karen Pryor's Don't Shoot the Dog, and I read her chapter on punishment. And I thought, as I read that, you know, and it, and it was just so, so clearly applicable to the horse training world. And I thought, oh, the horse world really needs to understand this. And we just don't. We do not understand the negative fallout of punishment. And when I hear you talk about degrees of freedom, I have that same reaction of, oh, we in the horse world need to really hear this and understand it better. And so what I really hope we explore is the whole societal impact, um, the societal relationships that this exploration of degrees of freedom brings us to. So with that said, can I just stop talking and and let you jump in? Well, that's all we want to do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So first of all, what okay. does, what what is meant by degrees of freedom? Well, um, can I can I can I back up a little bit? Absolutely. And, uh, before we do that, and yep. and and say that uh, I'd like to begin the conversation with the description of an experiment. Okay. That was done back in the 1960s with pigeons. And this is a cringeworthy experiment for many. So okay. <laughs> you got to have a trigger warning here in advance here that involves electric shock. All right. But what's fascinating is here's a pigeon. And in those days, they would get a harness and put on a pigeon and implant the electrodes running from the harness right to the bones of the pigeon. So the skeletal structure. And so shock, that would make sure there's a consistent shock delivered to the animal. So it wasn't delivered to the floorboard so the pigeon could jump up and, and flap up and avoid it, or uh, it was delivered directly to the skeletal structure of the pigeon. Okay. Dominique and I are both cringing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah. pretty cringeworthy. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not. But I say that because what I'm about to describe becomes even more interesting when you hear that. So they arranged it such that the pigeon would peck a key and with every key, it time it pecked that key, it would get an electric shock. Okay. Right to the skeletal system. An unpleasant electrical shock. Okay. How do we know it's unpleasant? The pigeon was not thrilled by this notion of getting this shock. Okay. 
But yet, if you watch this pigeon, you would see it peck and get the shock, peck and get the shock, peck and get the shock, peck and get the shock continuously. Which seems on the surface bizarre. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Very bizarre. You say, well, how come? Why have they engaged in such costly behavior when all they have to do is not peck? Yeah. Because if the pigeon didn't peck, he didn't get the shock. Shock was contingent or dependent, more, more precisely. So an animal would sh peck, shock, peck, shock. But if you're patient enough and waited to the 25th peck, and actually they took it out to 50, but the published study was 25, lights would flash and a food hopper would come up and the pigeon would eat. And now if you observe the pigeon and it went over and pecked and there was no shock, the pigeon would go into a rage. It would show distress. It would be upset. Its wings would flap, as pigeons do when they're in distress. Yeah. And then they go back and peck again, and the shock was there. Oh, the pigeon would calm down, just calmly start pecking. And you look at this and you say, "This is a masochistic. Yeah. This is a weird. Yeah, crazy. How can you come for this?" Well. When you began to look at it in terms of the pigeon's alternatives, mm. from the pigeon's point of view, when shock was present, it meant it was going to eat. Mm -hmm. When shock was absent, it meant that it was not going to eat. So shock became, and the discriminative, if you will, for food. Mm -hmm. And from the pigeon's point of view, again, no peck, no food meant starvation. <laughs> you know, whether the experimenters would have let it starve or not, that's probably not the case, but they probably wouldn't have. But the pigeon doesn't know this, right? right? right. <laughs> and, the, uh, and so for the pigeons, it's peck, shock, food, peck, no shock, no food, don't peck, no shock, no food. Yeah. So the to understand exactly how this worked, they arranged another button. And in this button, when the pigeon pecked and received no shock, the pigeon could peck over on another button a few times, peck that button, and in so doing so, turn on the shock. Mm. The, if it came to a situation where there was no shock, would immediately work over and work to turn on the shock. Mm -hmm. So it would turn on the shock that was discriminative for food. Now, it looked as though the pigeon enjoyed the shock. That it was it was part of its the, the pigeon life, I guess, is what you'd say. However, they then put up a, another key. And in this key, the pigeon could peck 25 times and get food with no shock being delivered. The pigeon immediately switched. In other words, it did not peck the key that produced the shock. If it had a key that produced the same critical consequence, in this case, food, mm -hmm. because food had to be more was more important to the pigeon than shock, because the animal would endure all these shocks to get the food. Now you had another way to get the food, and all of a sudden the pigeon. And there's a great graph of this. The behavior is going along, and then you get the alternative, and it just drops like that. <laughs> In other words, the graph on the on the key that has the shock yeah. going along, you offer the alternative, and bingo, it drops. drops. The rate drops immediately on that key, shock key. And it showed quite clearly that given an alternative that produces the same critical consequence, but without the shock, the pigeon wasn't crazy. The pigeon wasn't a massacre. <clears throat> The pigeon was simply behaving in accord with the conditions arranged by the experimenter. Yep. <clears throat> if I and, you know, and now, given that this was again the 1960s, 66 was the publication date of a uh, paper, they replicated, replicated this with humans. Not with the shock, I suppose. Yeah, shock, right? There. Oh, okay. Uh, and, uh, and they also replicated it with. Uh, uh, you know, uh, other types of aversive events. So when they replicated <laughs> it with humans, were the humans food deprived? 
Yeah, no, they, they were they were working for preferred reinforcers during the hospital, actually, hospital patients working for uh, uh, preferred reinforcers and so on. This was the, the day when you could do anything to anybody. And so the uh, um, you couldn't do this experiment today. Mm. But the point was, humans were no different in their in their patterns. You couldn't even do it on pigeons anymore, I suppose, <laughs> today. No, it would be very difficult to do it with a pigeon anymore. Mm. Which in a way, you know, is good. And another way, it's leaves things on the table that yet to be, you know, investigated. But maybe that's the price we pay. It'd be nice to our pigeons. Uh, although the pigeons who aren't using these experiments end up to squab on tables of in restaurants. So, so no one asks the pigeon which they prefer. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but even, I mean, just, just that experiment alone makes you start thinking about right. all the, all, all of the, uh, places in the real world where this dynamic applies and oh, absolutely. Where, yeah yeah and some well, of the pitfalls in our training that are so easy to fall into where you think oh yes I'm I'm being nice I'm I'm giving my horse a cookie at the end of a training session where I've been whacking him with with a whip but I'm really I'm using positive reinforcement and I'm giving him a pet and and my horse goes along with it, it that's the pigeon right. who's getting an electric shock that's exactly right yeah and so what we have here is the pigeon with the shock has no alternative way of getting the food other than to take the shock yeah and the absence of the shock indicates no food even that alternative is that method of getting food is gone so, and the pigeon will work to reinstate it. Well, that's what we mean when we say it has no alternatives. It has zero degrees of freedom. In other words, it has no other way of getting that food other than to take that shock. On the other hand, when we add the alternative, we have the way the pigeon is historically getting food, which is to peck and get shocked. And we add one more alternative to it or one alternative to what it's currently doing, to be yeah. grammatically precise. <laughs> uh, uh, what happens is we get a, uh, a switch. And that means what we have there is one degree of freedom. Yes. In other words, a number of options minus one describes the degrees of freedom the pigeon has. Right? Right. So in this case, the pigeon has one degree of freedom for obtaining its food. And then the consequence of, of receiving the shot can have its effect. In other words, this is what is important about understand about this as we talk about degrees of freedom, is that we tend to concentrate on the consequences that are maintaining the behavior through our programs, through our routines that we set up, through our training routines and so on. But other consequences are occurring to the organism as well continually. And when, much like the shock is occurring, right? Only right. most of the times the routines are not shocking, but, you know, there's effort. There's a little, and we'll talk about some of these things in a second. Yeah. But, but what happens is what we call these are program specific. Some people use the term program intrinsic consequences. It means they're intrinsic to the activity. They're activity specific consequences that have their effect only if the critical consequence is obtainable in more than one way. So say that so again. We, so, so we have activity intrinsic consequences yep. that can only have their effect if the critical consequence, in other words, the one that maintains the behavior through the program, yep. is equally available okay. on another alternative. So if I'm if I can work in a coal mine, and there are mills next, uh, around the corner, and I can work on the mills, um, and I can get paid about the same. Well, I can then say, okay, um, well, the, the, the coal mine is uh, uh, closer to where I live. Uh, so, you know, and I get home faster, I'll let that yeah. govern my behavior. I'll, I'll, I'll choose the coal mine, right? Whereas if I only have the mills available, that option isn't there. That consequence can't have its effect. 
or if the male paid half the salary, Okay. Then, or if the mill paid half the salary, then you right. wouldn't well, have the same critical consequence. It would be that right. so the activity specific consequence, like the geographical right. placement, would not have any effect. So, um, what you're seeing here is that these other, but also I could have eventually get black lung disease. Yes. And I say, oh, you know, I'd rather walk. I'd rather walk an extra mile to work than get black lung disease. And I work in the mills. Those consequences can't come into play if the only way I can earn a living is working in one or the other. Mm -hmm. Right. So the uh, the key element here, and what makes degrees of freedom important to trainers in particular, it allows one to analyze the basically naturally occurring activity-specific consequences that result as a, as a function of the training that are overshadowed by the critical consequence, the food or whatever that is maintaining the behavior through the program, if there's only one way to get that food. Yeah. Now, in the clinic, when we work with patients, typically patients come into us and their real issue is one degree of freedom or zero degrees of freedom, rather. In other words, they're engaged in behavior, which is costly to them and others, but it's typically the only way they can get a particular valuable consequence. So our job as therapists is to try to figure out what that is, what those relations are, and can we provide another way without the costs? In other words, our job isn't to take away the reinforcer. Our job is to provide that reinforcement for an alternative that doesn't have the same costs attached to it. Yes, I mean, some of the case histories that you've shared have been just fascinating. Can you sort of do a, a sort of a quick example of one of the case histories that you've talked about with people? Because it's it really is very clarifying. Yeah, well, we, we've had um, uh, cases where, uh, I don't want to go into too complex case here. Let me think here. Um, we had uh, the, the woman who... who um, pretended that she was pregnant oh yeah yes yes although yes yeah and 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 um this was a patient on a locked psychiatric unit patient of mine and uh, she was admitted because she was going through blackout spells and ending up on her childhood front porch even though her family no longer lived there the people there didn't appreciate it much and uh and sitting there in a kind of a swing that they had on the porch waving at people as they walk by in a kind of a disassociative state, out, not, not connected with what was going on and not being totally responsive to the world around her. Uh, she also uh, had taken a pillow and pushed it under in, you know, down her pants and over her and under her shirt to look like she was pregnant. So she was acting as though she were pregnant and engaging in these blackouts and and other things. And when you asked her, well, why are you, you know, what, um, what is it you would like? What is it you, if you'd want if things were good? And she responded by saying, I'd be perfect, perfect, like the baby Jesus. And then she'd say, I'd be the baby Jesus. And so you had this notion of perfection. And so we'd say, oh, you know, Jesus was perfect in his way. In what way do you need to be perfect? <laughs> All right. So we take that, that we'd say, we'd call it a tact, an abstract tact in, in, in technical language and using Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior. But it's a description of what it is that's operating in her life. You know, why did she have been? Well, the short story was she, uh, Worked two jobs, had four kids, uh, and was going to school to advance her career, and had a very demanding husband who required like dinner on the table and these types of things at this time. Now, uh, this was the antithesis of what you'd call modern yes. women's equality. Believe me, this situation, right? This was like, this is like you know the stories from hell, right? And so. The question began then 
why, what happened in the past? Well, that would, uh, when she was pregnant. Well, that was the only mm. time the husband relented. That was the only time he was good to her. It was during her pregnancies. So what she was saying was, I want to be treated as though I were pregnant when I'm not pregnant, basically. And the question is raised, well, why didn't she just say that? And the answer is, <laughs> she did. <laughs> but nobody listened to her. And nobody, no one. And so she, that alternative was precluded. She had no other way of getting that out, right? That is, and so she ended up doing engaged in behaviors but let the world know what she was after but without having to say it which was heavily punished mm. by saying it directly then we uh there were happy times on her parents front porch yeah. <laughs> sitting in that swing so all she was saying is she wanted to return to those times of reduced requirements good interactions with people and so on and it turned out that what she wanted wasn't at all. So she is a person where the shock became so much, yeah. if you will, the shocks that she was getting in order to maintain her relationships and so on. But she did not want to leave the husband. She did not want, she was adamant about that. She didn't want. So we began talking with him and he was a piece of work. And the uh, uh, he would sit in uh, sessions with uh, these cutoff shirts and ripple his muscles, <laughs> big muscular guy. <laughs> but uh, but in essence, when we got him to relent, and we had to do this reciprocity type of thing with him and exchange things his wife would do, he would do, and so on and forth, forth and engineer it all out and work with a social worker and then follow up and so on. When he began to relent. Without any direct intervention, she took out the pillow and and no longer talked of mm. baby Jesus. And so, the, um, uh, so here we looked at how could we establish directly communicating what she wanted and after, without it resulting in an aversive event for her, and maintain the relationship that she was in. Right. So what we find is that many times people who are admitted to hospitals and, and engage in other patterns where, is where the costs are finally becoming so jeopardizing that they do something desperate, but they try to do it in such a way that the benefits mm -hmm. are also still maintained. Right. Right. Or not totally jeopardized or threatened. And so this is how you begin to understand uh, these more uh, difficult patterns for which people engage in. But what we find is that these are all sensible behaviors, and these are not uh, pathological indicates uh, indications of some type of internal pathology or chemical or, imbalance and um, so on. Something of that, no, no, which is just no. fascinating. No, she didn't fall and hit her head. All behaviors are functional and have a purpose. Yes, and you know even the ones who do have an organic base. You can have an organic source to the pattern, but once that pattern becomes public, it'll be swamped and become an opera. So the uh, uh, by the when I say swamped, I mean by the contingencies, we'll select that pattern into the, its ecology. So you can have organic sources, um, both genetic and uh, source, as well as uh, physiological changes that occur, biological changes. Um, we've uh, in our book we talk about. Um, I can plug the book here. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the nonlinear uh, contingency analysis is the title. Yes. Yeah, really attractive title. And <laughs> the uh, but in the it's uh, the people ask me what was the most difficult thing in the book, and I said the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. That's <laughs> the cover. It's actually a pretty easy read. So uh, just the, just for uh, people uh, who are listening, this book just came out when. Uh, was it last last fall? Was it? Yeah, early copies came out last fall, but the official publication date was okay. like January two thousand twenty-two. The copyright and it's available. Where? It's readily, 
everywhere, <laughs> everywhere fine books are sold. No. Right. Amazon, you know, uh, Rutledge is the publisher, and so forth. And and uh, and it's a uh, you get the paperback version. The hardcover version is amazingly expensive. I think they do that to to you know get as much as they can out of libraries. So you were going to talk about a, um, an example of physiological a behavior coming from physiological. Well, in the book, we talk about a woman whose mother was in a basically home hospice care. She was taking care of her mother. Her mother had a terminal illness. Uh, she began hallucinating and engaged in all kinds of like delusional and other behaviors. And the doctor said, well, it could be a function of the disease or it could be a function of the medications that we need to use to control the pain and, and so on of the disease at this point. So basically, their suggestion was to reality test. In other words, take her into contact. real. So she would say things like, there's water coming out of the walls. There's water coming out of the walls. And the, and the prescribed procedure was take her to the wall and never touch the wall and see that it's dry. And they would do that. They'd take her to the wall. She'd see, Mom, the wall's dry. The wall's dry. Touch her hand. She'd go back over there. She'd turn around and look at him and say, there's water coming out of the walls. There's water coming out of the walls. So that wasn't working. So this woman happened to know me and contacted me. And I said her a couple things to read. And I, and I said, for this particular incident, ask yourself, sit back and ask yourself why this could be a sensible behavior. Instead of looking at it as uh, you know, some type of yeah. delusion or hallucination she's having that just occurring. Why would this, why water? Is there anything she'd be involved with that would make, that she'd be involved with wetness? And she stopped and said, no, I can't. Well, you know, there is one thing. Uh, she wears a diaper. Oh. I said, well, check the diaper. Yeah. It was leaking. So when the diaper was full, and leaking, yeah. that's when it would occur. What yeah. she was saying is, I want my diaper changed. And so the daughter would do, when she would say, there's water coming out of the wall, oh, mom, you need your diaper changed. Okay. And bingo, gone. No water coming out of the walls, the diaper would be changed and be fine. Tell Uncle Harry to get down here and put a, a, a log on that fire. Instead of, mom, Uncle Harry's been dead for 20 mm -hmm. years. Say, oh, mom, would you like, are you cold? Yeah. Do you want a sweater? Right. And all of these things. And she just outlined a series of things that she could analyze. So what happened is the organic involvement created an occasion, if you will, or potentiated, we'd, we'd say, certain behaviors which were describing what she was after. But for whatever reason, the physiological change made it difficult for her to say it directly. It was it. I found that it's better to treat many of these things as a kind of aphasia where you want to say something, but you can't say it directly. So you engage in behaviors that are reflecting the outcome you're after, yes. but you can't say it directly. So if you can find out as the caregiver what that is. Now, uh, this is being used in uh, uh, settings that treat cognitive decline. Uh, now, um, there are many examples. Claudia Drossel at the Eastern Michigan University now has a uh, uses these procedures with the clients that she has, older clients. A uh, woman has said, uh, I'm not taking a, uh, a shower until spring. Well, what happens in spring? They're in Michigan. What happens in spring? It gets warmer. <laughs> what does she want? She wanted yes. it warmer yep. in the shower room. Very sensible. When it, when, it, when it was warmer in the shower room, she went in and took mm. a shower herself. All of these things you'll see uh, people wandering around, wandering off. One wandering off, the person ended up in uh, these little side, little restaurants and stuff where people spoke the language of her native tongue. <laughs> Another one was like these walks through the country the guy was taking. Turns out he's a golfer and would golf every morning and walk along the greens and so on. And in essence, and every time they look at these things, they could understand what the consequences yeah. were the people were after that governed the wandering. 
and then they could provide them for mm. you. Yeah. You take walks. They could they could do these things, right? And all of a sudden, no more wandering. Uh, so if you stop and look and listen to the consequences then and to the contingencies, oftentimes these what seem to be why is this pigeon pecking and getting shot becomes mm -hmm. perfectly clear. And so that's in essence we went down the clinical uh, rabbit hole here a little bit but uh and there are many many more in the book we treated um, and worked with clients from all diagnostic categories and my specialty was ambulatory schizophrenia and so the uh that was my specialty particularly in the areas of hallucinatory and delusional behavior and we were very successful working with folks in this area. So if someone said, you know, if someone schizophrenic said to you that they were being threatened by the devil, how would you analyze that? Mm -hmm. It all depends on the situation and their, and their, uh, uh, their situation uh, that they're in. In other words, one reference to a devil could be a different metaphor than another person's reference to a devil right and the uh so i wouldn't there is no standard way of saying devil uh, mm -hmm. references mean this i would ask i'd look at the context i can actually give you a an example with the devil here uh actually a couple of them i've had i've had many run-ins <laughs> with the devil here in psychiatry but <laughs> but uh one that stands out the woman uh uh, who, who every time you talk to her, she just look at you and go, the devil, the devil wants a pint of blood. The devil wants a pint of blood. And I sat down and talked to her. And I said, yeah, I said, the devil, uh, the devil demands a lot from us. Demands a sacrifice. That's a, that's a big sacrifice is a pint of blood. She goes, yes, big sacrifice. Devil, oh, terrible. And I said, then, uh, you know, those, those, there are many times in our life where those around us are demanding big sacrifices and wants and and, and wants a lot from us. Uh, and, and there were several similar comments, you know, in talking along the theme. And finally, she goes, "Yes, yes, my husband. My husband wants a pint of blood." <laughs> okay. So in her case, mm -hmm. the devil was the husband. It was too demanding. And it was about the requirement to be placed on it. And she'd been brought into the psychiatry from a medical unit and uh, and was facing discharge home when she had this episode. And she just was so weakened from her hospital stay and from her surgery that it must have been so aversive, the idea of, of the meeting the demands at home at this point. That was... And again, you ask, well, why don't people just say yeah. this? Well, mm -hmm. You know what? They have. If you look in their history, they have. Nobody's listened. They've done nothing. Well, it's it's a little bit the same with the animals. In a way, you know, they say, I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable. I'm scared. Yeah. And they escalate and people don't, either the, if the trainer is not an experienced trainer, they don't or do not have the observe, you know, the observational skill. Right. The animal says, I'm uncomfortable. I'm a, and, and they escalate. Right. And then it lunges out, bites the children or whatever. And so if we go back to what you were saying before, giving this animal the critical consequence of, you know, not being near that child that is very scary because it's running all over and screaming. If you gave it that distance, it wouldn't have to go through this escalation and become this, what we call aggressive dog. Right. Yeah, that's highly likely. And so th this is where the level of analysis be begins to pay off because it brings you into contact with what is actually going on with the organism. And what we call this is a, is a whole term is that typically there are ongoing contingencies maintaining behavior, whether it's an animal or a human. We typically mm -hmm. ignore those <laughs> when we train animals or humans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And what we do is impose another contingency on top of those. And we call mm -hmm. this superimposition. And in the literature, superimposition has been most studied, interestingly mm -hmm. enough, with punishment. 
But if you look at the experiments which say punishment suppresses behavior, it's done while the behavior is being reinforced. Mm -hmm. In other words, there'll be a variable interval schedule of reinforcement, and then there'll be an electric shock placed on top, and the behavior will, will decline. Now you remove the shock, and the behavior comes back. Yeah. Depression re rebounds. But you haven't done anything to the underlying VI schedule. Right. Why shouldn't it rebound? <laughs> In other words, you've reinstated the past schedule. Mm -hmm. Wiley and Grossman, and this was published in 1988, from, and they were in our lab, actually did this experiment, imposed one contingency on top of another, got the same suppression, removed it, and it bounced back. Only this time they used nothing but positive reinforcement. In other words, a positive reinforcement schedule where it's the, the reinforcers schedule appropriately can suppress behavior. Right. In most of the experiments done with what's called differential reinforcement of alternative behavior, DRA, um, you'll have an ongoing behavior and then you'll reinforce an alternative and not reinforce the disturbing pattern. And the disturbing pattern... I mean, with the same reinforcer you're using for the DRA, right? Because it's differential reinforcement. Right. So, for for example, you might have a horse that's nipping at you. That's the behavior you don't want. So you are reinforcing yeah. anything that's not nipping. Right. You're reinforcing the horse for having his head away from you. Right. You reinforce that, reinforce that, and then your phone rings. Right. You stop re, you know, you right. you stop reinforcing the the horse looking away from your pocket. The positive reinforcement goes away. And the horse is nipping at you again. Yes, because they, you haven't done anything to the underlying consequence. Right. And the uh, um, and this is what and what's hilarious about this, if you want to call it that, is that in the literature when they prove the effectiveness of DRA, they remove it and their behavior comes back. <laughs> and you put it in again and it comes down. So and so the uh, and so the the typical uh, uh, a solution to that is put it on a schedule where. You know, you don't have to reinforce every time and the organism doesn't know exactly when the reinforcer is coming. So you can schedule it out to keep the behavior suppressed. But if that schedule is ever removed that, and there's nothing's happened to the underlying contingency, well, it'll come back. And so what we uh, describe basically in the, our literature is that much, and particularly with teaching children and learning issues, whether they're autistic or other issues, there's a lot of superimposition contingencies used. You superimpose, oh, I'm, we're going to do a, a reinforcer preference. Then to get the pre preferred reinforcer, you got to do this. Well, as soon as you consume that preferred reinforcer or move on to something else, well, that original contingency is there and you're back smacking your neighbor. It is really important for us when we look at things to look at what are the ongoing contingencies operating and what is happening. And what are the reactive, what we call them activity specific reinforcers that are occurring that are maintaining the behavior? And, you know, these are the things that are typically overlooked when we simply go out and use a positive reinforcement program to get the behavior we're after. And there are times, by the way, when that's only thing, that's what's required. And we could talk about some of the nuance here in a minute. And if, uh, if, what direction you want. <laughs> so would, would the toilet flushing behavior that you described, that I've heard you describe, would that be an example of this where the um, individual who was in a adult um, uh, daycare? Sheltered workshop. Yeah, the toilet flushing resulted in delaying going back to a, a terrible job yeah. in the afternoon. So in the morning, he's, he's engaged in some very repetitive behavior. Right. Uh, that was the sheltered workshop job for yeah. him. Oh, yeah, it was a horrible, horrible job he had, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would have flushed toilets. Then during the lunch break, after the lunch break, he would go into the men's room and just flush the toilet, flush the toilet, flush the toilet. The toilet would overflow. There's a mess. People had to come clean it up. And, of course, the staff right. is very upset, wants his behavior to stop. How do we get this behavior to stop? What kinds of constraints can we put on this individual, whatever? But right. what he was really saying is right. exactly. it's more interesting to watch all of you flutter around 
cleaning up after the toilets that, I, that is now overflowing than it is for me to go back to the boring work. Right, exactly. And so the ultimate fix is to change the afternoon activities. You didn't have to address the toilet flushing. The funny part of that story is that when I did that, the first day I came in and the staff said, we need a toilet flushing program <laughs> for him. And I said, I think he knows how to flush the toilet. I don't think, I think, he, I think he's fluent. I don't think you have to worry about that. So let's look at some other variables here. <laughs> yeah. He knows how to flush the toilet. <laughs> and, you know, and things like you do in experience, you'll say, well, does he engage in this behavior elsewhere? Like back at the group home? Mm-hmm. No. So obviously, an impulse control triggered by uh, you know, Im- loss of impulse control triggered by a a, a, a handle on a, yeah. <laughs> on a toilet, right? No. So you know that you know all these things were positive. You know, positive that you know he he engaged in these repetitive uh, obsessional behaviors based on. Uh, well, why isn't the obsessional back at the ranch? You know, <laughs> why only here? And so you begin to ask these questions and. And the same thing occurs when cases of feces smearing on walls and and this type of thing. It, it usually come, you'll find that it's related to the social environment in which the, the folks are in. Most of the patterns, I, there was a case that uh, uh, I observed, actually it was just a little vignette of a guy in a therapy session. And, and I was on a panel whereby we were supposed to give uh, our opinions. Then the guy went and picked up his... Uh, uh, and and dry cleaning rather for he and his wife and brought it home and got home a half an hour late and his wife went off on him and he's describing this to the therapist that she just screamed at me and it went on and on and so on and um and talking about this and and the therapist and the and the video was going uh oh okay and how did that make you feel and so on and so forth and i sat back thinking but when he said it went on and on if she is really mad at him, when my wife's mad at me, she wants to be out of her sight. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. And the, uh, uh, but it went on and on, suggests that his being away home late indicates that he's not there all that much. And that what, by going off on him, involved him to a greater extent than if she had just said thanks. And he'd have probably gone in the other room and disappeared. And so when you look at this, you say, well, I know he's the client, but it's her behavior that makes sense. And it's his behavior, which is occasioning this. So this is a a, a situation where, you know, the you have these interlocking contingencies, if you will, from you can go into if you want to study that, you can go to look in sociology's kind of an area called social exchange theory. And this is what needs to be addressed, not how he felt about that episode. And so you begin to see these contingencies once and be sensitive to them. And at least you can test it then. These are all testable. Because if I change it and it doesn't, the behavior doesn't change, then my, my hypothesis is incorrect. So the question is, you know, if you were my client, uh, we begin looking at uh, doing interaction logs between the couple and see if we can improve that rather than trying to decrease her yelling at him or in, or decrease his, you know, feelings of uh, abandonment and so on. I try to establish patterns of marital harmony. And if that's possible, sometimes what they're all both saying is I want out of here and let's get a divorce. <laughs> so that's, that's possible too. That's happened. But oftentimes that's not the case, particularly when they go on and on and to get the involvement of the other. When one is engaged in behaviors, even though it's costly, in other words, they're taking all the shock. And what happens is, the only way I get this involvement is if we get in an argument, the shock becomes discriminative for the reinforcer, right? The argument becomes discriminative for what I have to do in order to get the involvement. And so, you know, you... Uh, uh, you have to step back and look at these things and make sense out of them. And once you do that, then you begin to understand how one can intervene and make sense out of what seemingly is nonsensical behavior. 
you know, I'm thinking at this point, we talk about in the intro to the podcast where it's about all things equine, and some people may be thinking, what has this got to do with horses? Yeah. But I've boarded for, you know, most of the time that I've had horses, I was boarding my horses out. And the horse world is so known for <laughs> for being filled with crazy people. <laughs> and you particularly meet them in boarding barns. And I'm thinking, you know, horses come with humans attached. And we are so often yeah. getting into these situations where you just think, oh my heavens, this person is crazy. <laughs> and and it's and 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 I'm boarding my horse in this environment that feels as though it's filled with landmines. And this conversation may may be incredibly useful to some of the people who are navigating those minefields yeah. in, in these boarding barns. So while it may not sound as though we're talking about horses, oh, are we talking about horses? Everything is connected to everything else. Well, I have a question that I would like to bring back to horses and animals. We talked about critical consequences versus activity-specific consequences. Right. I'd like to sparse that out a little bit and see how if, how, if we understand this well, it can make us better trainers. This seems like a good place to pause. Joe has given us a tremendous amount to think about. And rather than play the entire conversation all at once, I want to divide it up into smaller units so you have time to really think about what he's been saying. I know for many of you, the wheels will really be turning and you'll be thinking about all the different ways in which these concepts that he's talking about are relevant, not just to your horses and your training, but also to some of the experiences you've had in your life, relationships that you've had with people where you thought, why in the world? Why in the world are they behaving in this way? And now you've got another really useful way of thinking about some of the behavior that we encounter. But this is a podcast about horses. So next time we're going to begin by making a more direct connection to horses. And then we're going to expand even further on the concept of degrees of freedom. So until next time, train well and have fun with your horses.